I told our guys this is something you'll probably remember for the rest of your life, um, and they probably don't realize that till after the game what they what they did. But um, it was a great showcase. I just wish we could have come out on top. I see guys that are flying in from other countries. I see guys that are coming across the country and, and hundreds of our alumni. And uh, my hope is that they will take as much pride in this victory as, uh, as we will. But uh, it'll be forever remembered as the target field game. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. You've tuned into a special of the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Two guys and occasional guests talking about the news in NCAA Division III football. In this case, news about one very specific NCAA Division III football game, and that was the game between St. Thomas and St. John's on Saturday, September 23rd. The one which, if you're a casual football fan, would be the only Division III game you've ever heard of because there were 37,000 people in the stands. And if you're a D3 fan, you know that these are arch rivals. And uh, in this case... Hopefully you find that it's a, a game that's worth this entire extra podcast about because Keith McMillan and I will have a, uh, a, a longer form podcast about uh, all of the usual things that we would talk about in week four on uh, Sunday night going into Monday morning. I've asked Adam Turr, the uh, columnist for Around the Nation, to join us here for this specific podcast. First of all, uh, Adam, thanks a lot for joining me. I oh, appreciate it. Happy to be here, Pat. It was a, uh, and it's a game which is really just uh, in so many ways, Adam, unprecedented for Division Three. Uh, you know, the the novelty of playing in a Major League Baseball stadium and then playing in front of not only the largest crowd in NCAA Division Three football history, but twice the size of any previous game before. It's just kind of a, um, you know, it was just such an unusual circumstance, and in in my mind, just a, a great showcase for Division Three football. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's going to take a long time for this to sink in, I think, for these players. And I think both coaches mentioned that in their postgame comments that, you know, this is such a, a lifetime event for everyone involved. And, you know, hopefully those 37,355 fans feel the same way. I know that it is a uh, an event. I think a, a lot of people uh, coming for uh, coming back coming back as uh, alumni, people who had been away from campus, either of these campuses for a long time, uh, but also just a, an instance where, uh, in a sense, uh, let's let's talk about a couple of things. There's obviously a lot of things that uh, went into this game, and a game in which uh, we should mention, of course, that uh, University of St. Thomas won by the score of 20-17. to 17. Um, Adam, a game in which uh, I think if you go back to not quite a year ago when this was first announced, there was definitely some some doubt about what this would look like. Um, I went back to what was said on the message board on our site on d3boards.com about this game right after, and the plan of it, about it, right after it was announced. And even I was a little bit dubious as to whether it would, uh, whether it would break the record. The price for tickets was so high. Um, you know, the, you know, would it, how would it look in a 40,000 seat stadium? Um, and all sorts of things like that. And then just kind of the Minnesota Twins marketing machine got behind it. The two uh, schools and their alumni offices and their marketing offices really wanted to get as many of their people back in it, uh, back here and into the stadium as much as possible. And it turned into just this amazing, fantastic thing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's exceeded all expectations. I mean, 37,000, that's... I mean, and if you put it in perspective for a Division Three football player... 
that would take probably 12 seasons of playing 10 games a year to ever play in front of 37,000 people total. If that, I mean, it, it's, there's nothing to compare it to in division three. Uh, it was a previous record was 17,000 for Oshkosh and Whitewater. And this more than doubled that, uh, this was just crazy, but and it wasn't a novelty. That's what I like. This wasn't some, you know, non-conference one-off showcase game to start the season. I mean, this was a big game and it was just made bigger by the location and the event and the marketing and everything that went into it. Well, and you talked to both of these coaches right before the before the game, during the course of the week. What were the impressions you got from those guys? Well, and, and again, and of course, a lot of it is coach speak because you want your players to treat this like it's just any other game. But I think both coaches appreciated, you know, the history that it was going to be made uh, today on Saturday. And, you know, especially Glenn Caruso really appreciated that this was St. Thomas's home game. You know, that's the other thing. This isn't a neutral site game. This was St. Then they made it very clear that this was just St. Thomas choosing on its turn to host the rivalry game to move it to target field. So it was a home game for St. Thomas. They took a lot of pride in that. They made made sure that everyone else knew that it was a St. Thomas home game. It, it wasn't a neutral site game, even though there may have been a little more red than purple in the stands. Uh, and <laughs> you know, but both coaches, you know, th- their players have been in big games. And again, because of this rivalry, you know, they're used to playing in front of maybe eight or nine, ten thousand people, which for a Division three crowd is still huge. You know, it's still very difficult to compare it to. But players from both the Tommies and the Johnnies had been on a big stage before. You know, they've been in the postseason before. So, I mean, if any two teams were going to have an event like this, I think these are two of the most prepared. And I know we've been talking uh, all week about what other teams could do something similar like this, what other rivalries maybe could play on a stage like this. And I think, you know, these two teams were were a perfect start for uh, an event like this. The um, some of the things that went into and around this game. If you watched the uh, broadcast, first of all, uh, what you saw was the a lot of the Minnesota Twins in-house production, multiple camera angles. This was not a Division Three football production, right? With uh, you know a, a mixture of cameras and maybe a uh, uh, maybe a TriCaster and a three-camera switcher and stuff like that. It was the full. In that sense, it had the full arm of the uh, Minnesota Twins production staff behind it, and that was fantastic to watch, although I was spending as much time as possible actually watching what was going on in the field. Uh, some of the other kind of little touches around the stadium, um, the uh, the MIAC team banners were all uh, draped along uh, one of the railings in the upper deck, so you had your Concordia and you had your uh, Hamlin and uh, they were represented with uh, banners, not only uh, represented with some fans in the stands. There were people there in Hamlin gear. There were people there in Concordia gear. Concordia had the week off on Saturday, so that certainly helped. Um, purple and gray bunting around the stadium, which was something I, th- I just thought was um, just uh, really interesting and, and fantastic. And I'm not sure how many uh, pieces of bunting that was necessary to cover the, to cover the stadium. Um, and then the, the game program... Um, is this amazing kind of yearbook slash history of, uh, of of this rivalry? It's just kind of really fantastically put together. Um, just the amount of behind the scenes planning that went into this. Uh, Michelle Morgan, the assistant athletic director for St. Thomas, was saying that this was a a project that was a year in the making. She had um, a, a three-inch uh, thick binder full of uh, things that uh, were going on today. Uh, everything was super planned out. 
it looked like it truly looked like a professional product. And uh, uh, other than the fact that there's a, a Vikings game taking place in Minneapolis uh, on Sunday, it would be the uh, the most professional production in Minneapolis, possibly in anything in any venue for any type of event this weekend. And I'm pretty sure it's safe to say that this is the first and only Division three college football game that has had a kiss cam which was a nice touch. They really played up the whole baseball jumbotron, uh, you know, getting the fans into it, which was really fun to see, you know, watching at home. And the broadcast did a great job of, you know, showcasing how different this was than your typical college football game. Aside from the uh, the accoutrements and the other things around the game, of course, um, just like you emphasized in your column during the week, Adam, this, of course, is a, a regular season football game, not just a spectacle and a, a game in which, uh, you know, uh, the early lead in the MIAC, with all apologies to Concordia Moorhead, is on the line. And it was played in what has become kind of the traditional Tommy Johnny fashion over the course of the last couple of years. Now, St. Saint, Saint Thomas has won four of these in a row and, and seven out of nine. Uh, and I think one of the reasons uh, for that is just uh, team speed on defense. There's been a couple years where uh, St. Thomas has maybe uh, missed a step here or there uh, in terms of reloading on defense, but that was not the case this year. Yet another defensive uh, performance that was impressive for St. Thomas. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, they, they imposed their will. They ran the, the type of game they wanted. I think St. John's only had 43 offensive snaps and or St. John's only had 43 offensive snaps. St. Thomas was wanting to control the ball, run the clock, control the time possession, which they were able to do. Uh, there were a few big plays. I was kind of surprised at how many penalties we saw in the first half. I mean, it was kind of uncharacteristic of these two very disciplined programs to have so many pre-snap penalties, especially. Uh, and that kind of affected the pace of play, I think, in the first half. But again, once St. Thomas got the lead, uh, the pace of play was – you know, in their hands and they controlled it the way they wanted to run in the football and the defense just, you know, forcing three and outs. Uh, St. John's was 0 for 11 on third down attempts, which uh, that, that's that's hard to do to not convert a single third down in a game. And I think that says a lot about St. Thomas's swarming defense and how, you know, players were able to get uh, sideline to sideline and, and really not give any lanes to St. John's to move the ball. We have a, a list of some things to talk about in a little bit on the podcast, but uh, one of the things I wanted to uh, touch on right now, because you mentioned the the pre-snap penalties, is just the noise in the stadium, the noise down at field level, was uh, had a big impact on teams, and both uh, teams' quarterbacks, uh, Jackson Erdman and Jock Parra, talked about this in the postgame, uh, just that it took so much time uh for both of the teams to just kind of get used to the noise. So you had pre-snap penalties in terms of motion. Uh, you had some extra men in the huddle, which I'm not sure why that would be related to uh, stadium noise, but that's something that happened quite a bit too. But it definitely took uh, teams a, a little while to adjust to the fact that, again, you you may have overestimated by 12, uh, 12 years, uh, at least uh, – at St. John's, you would play in front of 37,000 fans through the course of your regular season at home, but uh, never all in uh, never all in one place, and that definitely seemed to have an impact. Yeah, I think it wasn't just the crowd and the stadium, but there were other things going on. I mean, you're a Minnesotan. The, the heat. I mean, we got we've talked about the heat, and it was extremely hot up there today. You had you know the the stadium affecting maybe player sidelines. We saw two muff punts early on. Um, you you have an infield. Uh, I don't think anyone's ever played on a football field that has a dirt infield to deal with. Uh, there might be some. I'm Randolph Macon back in the day, but uh, nothing lately uh, that I can think of that has a baseball infield on the football field. So there are a lot of different factors that kind of 
you know, may have distracted or just took some getting used to. And I think that might have been why both teams looked a little bit shaky early on. Yeah, we um, and we talked about a lot of these things at the stadium and in the postgame. So let me touch on a couple of those. I'll start with the heat, because uh, that was my first question to Chinese coach Gary Foshing in the postgame. And here was his take on that. Possibly, although we didn't give up anything in the fourth quarter there. Um, but we had a lot of guys that uh, are pretty gassed. We had a, a Leonard Gutierrez was getting an IV in the middle of the fourth quarter. Uh, David Frana was um, pretty, pretty well done, too. So um, heat was definitely a factor. But again, those guys, they played their hearts out, and that's all I can ask. So you heard him talk at the beginning there about uh, the fact that they didn't give up any points in the f- in the fourth quarter. That's certainly true, and they only gave up three points in the second half altogether. But I, I really think that uh, the defense on the field for all that amount of time has a, a lot more to do with uh, – uh, has a, a lot greater impact beyond the fact that they kept St. Thomas off the scoreboard because – uh, they couldn't get the St. Thomas offense off of the field. Uh, the St. John's offense never got on the field, and it was uh, um, it was it was obviously uh, difficult for them to score. When let's see, they were on the field for five minutes and ten seconds of the second half. You imagine an entire second half, and you're not playing, you know, Augustana in its prime, or you know, uh, Salisbury or Springfield, someone that's that's triple optioning you to death. They could not get their defense off the field against St. Thomas, which is just running a pro-style offense. Yeah, and and I spoke to a couple St. John's people after the game as well, and then they considered themselves lucky that it was 20 to 17. When you think about all the breaks that went in their favor, you know, the the goal line interception that St. John's had, you know, St. Thomas could have run away with this game based on, you know, the time possession, the number of plays they ran, uh, the third down defense. Uh, so to keep it this close, 20 to 17, you know, St. John's had some, timely opportunistic plays otherwise we're looking at a two three maybe even more uh score game so you know st thomas did what they wanted to do and and st john's didn't have an answer on defense to get them off the field and then their offense wasn't doing themselves any favors by being unable to convert their downs you were talking about the size of the stadium and the two muff punts. I, I am not still kind of at a loss to figure those out. I, I think that maybe there is something at play here. Uh, first of all, they were two separate punt returners, a different guy each time. Um, the punt never really got – neither punt is, gets high enough above the, uh, above the upper deck of the stadium so that the wind has an impact. And there wasn't a ton of wind on Saturday. Um, but I think that maybe one of the things that could be an issue or, or could be unusual for a Division three punt returner is that that ball is coming out instead of you know a typical Division three stadium where there's probably nobody seated in the end zone and you've got a, a clear shot at the sky in the background like that. You have not just... Uh, one deck of fans, but two decks of uh, fans or, or a deck of fans and a deck of relatively empty stands, depending on which side you're coming from. And I'm sure that could have a, an impact on someone trying to pick the ball coming out of the sky. Yeah, absolutely. And dealing with the sun at a major league stadium in the day in the afternoon is always difficult. The players talked about that, especially early on. Uh, but later on throughout the course of the game, the dirt kind of loosened up a little bit. Um, you know, during uh, halftime, they came out and they raked the infield. But of course, you can't drag the infield because there's chalk lines painted on it. So, uh, and they did not come out and water down the infield like you would, uh, you know, between innings of a of a major league baseball game. So the grass or the grass, the dirt kind of loosened up a little bit, and things became a little more normal. But definitely early on, uh, Jock Perro especially was talking about his uh, offensive line was saying they couldn't get as much push early in the game. 
At the game on Saturday, I had a conversation with Frank Rakowski. Frank, if you have uh, followed Division Three football for a while, is a longtime uh, beat writer covering St. John's sports and St. John's football for the St. Cloud Times. No longer with them, but he's a uh, uh, reporter and a multimedia producer for uh, KSTP Channel 5 in the Twin Cities. And uh, so I took the opportunity to kind of pick his brain about the game as well. Frank, obviously you've seen a lot of... Tommy Johnny games, uh, a lot of St. John's games. Uh, St. John's seem to have trouble once again on offense against St. Thomas. It kind of seems to be par for the course lately. Yeah, I mean, it just uh, it seems like the last couple of matchups anyway, going back to that 2015 matchup when Jordan Roberts had the, the huge game up in Collegeville, that just physically up front, I mean, it, it's been a battle for St. John's, and I thought that was the case today. I mean, that's you see that in, in one-yard rushing. It just seemed like the Johnny's offense most of the day was kind of banging their head against the wall, just grinding, trying to trying to get something going. I mean, they, they had opportunities. They, had the, uh, they got the ball after that uh, fumbled punt early on and they had to settle for three points uh you know either the defense kept them in the game late uh you know they uh they got that interception when their backs were against the wall and the tommies could have kind of put it away in the fourth quarter uh, you know they came back and even when the johnny's offense couldn't convert there you know they they've again held st thomas uh, and forced him to punt and they got the break and the johnny's were able to get that that one touchdown but everything came through the air today uh you you could tell they wanted to move the ball on the ground and and just nothing was working and and that led to a lot of three and outs and, and kept that defense on the field during what was a pretty hot day. It did feel like right after that, uh, right after that 40 yard touchdown to Clark and then they get the stop. It did feel like just for a second, maybe there was a little bit of Johnny magic here today. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you've followed St. John's for as long as I have, you've seen them find a way to pull things out uh, in the craziest situations. And it looked like maybe they would today, but you just got to give credit to that St. Thomas defense. I mean, when they needed to make stops today, they did. Uh, you know, when he talked to Austin uh, Jokum, their defensive tackle, and he said, you know, before this game, you know, it was hard for him to describe exactly what it feels like to be a member of the St. Thomas defense, but he didn't quite feel like they were there. And I think, uh, you know, after after this game, uh, they, they feel like they're there. It's a big win. I mean, obviously, you know, you know how Division Three playoffs work as well as anybody. Having lost that game to Stout, uh, you know, they're they're kind of in playoff mode right away, uh, and uh, they responded today in front of, uh, you know, what had to be, I, I would think, a different situation. Division Three kids don't play in front of 37,000 people. You know, uh, a lot of Division One kids don't do that, so they really responded. You and I were here when they had the unveiling, when they announced it, when they kind of laid out the vision of what this could be. Um, and then... You know, you went back and covered St. John's again for quite some time leading up to this. What was the general feeling that you got from St. John's fans as to whether was this more circus publicity stunt or did people kind of uh, did it kind of grow on people that come around to it? Well, I think, uh, and you know, obviously, I left the Johnny's beat in March. So, but I think uh, over time uh, they came around and, and sort of embraced it. I think, uh, you know, I think if you go back to the live chats I used to do at the St. Cloud Times, if you looked at the live chat the week the game was announced, there was a lot of negativity, and then I actually saw some of it uh, on your boards and things like that from St. Thomas fans too. A lot of people were skeptical. I'm going to be honest; I was skeptical. Uh, you know, I, I thought obviously it's an opportunity that if you have it, you want to take it. If you're St. John's and, and St. Thomas. But, you know, I thought maybe 20,000. I thought they'd break the record, the unofficial Division Three attendance record. But, I, you know, it kept going and going and going, and it just snowballed and, and took on a life of its own. And, 
you know, again, I mean, I don't know how many games uh, today in the country you're going to see that have a, a crowd this big. I mean, you know, you get outside those Power Five conferences in, in Division One. there's not a lot of people that play in front of a crowd like this. So, you know, it's a credit to the rivalry. I think it's credit to the Twins getting behind it and really pushing it, and I think that helped. But it definitely took on a life of its own. What's your thoughts on this rivalry and how it has grown over the last decade or so? Well, I mean, I, I, it's always been big. It's, a, you know, the history in it is the part that always fascinates me. You go back 116 years, and there's stories, there's uh, colorful names, there's the, everybody knows the Ignatius O'Shaughnessy story, how he led St. John's to a victory in that first game, and then there was some malfeasance in Collegeville, and he got kicked out of it and came down to St. Thomas, and then now the stadium's named after him. Uh, you know, so there's always been that. And if you go back and look at the attendance through the years, you'll see, you know, here and there, big crowds pop up. I mean, I, even that 1949 game, I think, where St. Thomas was coming off the Cigar Bowl, I think there was like eight, 9,000 people, which for 1949 is a huge, huge crowd. And, you know, the the 100-year anniversary in 2001, I think it crossed 10,000. But, you know, you look at this from when I started covering the beat in 2000, the Johnnies were in the midst of just dominating this rivalry. I mean, you know, just an insane amount of 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 wins and you know it wasn't always easy that 2003 game that where John uh, t Gallardi tied the record you know St. Thomas would play him tough but it just was it always seemed to come out on the Johnny's end and then uh, you know uh, Glenn Crusoe got to St. Thomas in, in 2008 and you know those first two games were tough the Tommies I mean that the you know they came up with some heartbreaking losses but you could just see they were building and you, you know I mean the Johnny's fans are always big you know as well as I do their fan base is always going to travel you're always going to have they're good for eight nine thousand at this game no matter what but what I've started to see over the last 10 years with St. Thomas becoming the national power they've become is that the Tommies fans have started to come in instead of you know maybe two or three Tom thousand Tommy fans you're adding eight and nine thousand Tommy fans as well and today I mean you know, it looked like maybe a little more red than purple, but there was a, a lot more red. yeah. I mean, but th but there was a pretty big purple contingent, and I know talking to the Johnny players afterwards, that first drive they they couldn't hear. They were right down uh, where a lot of the St. Thomas people were, and so the Tommy fans that were here were making a lot of noise, and and so I think that's the biggest thing over the last ten years is St. Thomas becoming the power that they are and, and kind of achieving parity, if not getting above, you know, St. John's. That's what's helped turn this into, it's now a huge thing on both sides. So, and, and it's also, you know, certain events uh, take on a, a thing of their own. I think it's also become kind of a destination spot for people in Minnesota, especially, uh, you know, even people from other schools. I ran into a few people before the game who are, I'm like, what school are you from? And they're like, Hamlin or St. Cloud State. What are you doing here? Oh, it's just the place to be, you know. So I, you get some of that too. Too, and, and, and then obviously I think it being at Target Field and the Twins kind of pushing it you, today, you, you start to get a lot of casual fans here. So it's, uh, it amazes me. I mean, it amazed me when ESPN was there in 2015. It just it keeps getting higher and higher, and I keep getting more amazed by it. I also talked with Glenn Caruso afterwards. You, you heard Frank there talk a little bit about uh, you know this being the, the pinnacle and that sort of thing. I asked Glenn Caruso, what's next for this rivalry? Where does it go from here? I mean, we've done a lot of really neat things in the last 10 years. We've grown the attendance from 7,000 our first year to 30. I don't know what it exactly. I'm going to say 37, 35, whatever it is, 37,000. So that's pretty awesome. I, one of the highlights of this rivalry to me was really playing twice in one season two years ago because I think that speaks to how good both teams are to make it into the playoffs and then win playoff games to face, face uh, against each other. But it just I think either both teams fuel the other. 
and I feel like it's a, a beautiful symbiotic relationship. I, I know that our program is better for the legacy that that is left behind by prior rival teams, and that starts with Coach Gallardi. And my hope would be that our strength makes our rivals better as well. Adam, I don't know what this rivalry could do for an encore, frankly, after this. Uh, something in the postseason. Uh, I mean, that, that's the great point that Coach Caruso made was, you know, these teams are so good that this might not be the last time they face off again, even this year. And we could see a, a playoff game for the ages, you know. Can you imagine these teams uh, meeting, you know, at St. John's or at St. Thomas later this year in November or December, having a triple overtime thriller with a berth in the semifinals on the line, you know, when the stakes are higher. And mm. I feel like that's, that's where we're headed with this is, you know, both teams are ranked in the top 10 pretty consistently these days. And I don't see that going away anytime soon. Uh, so either both programs are in great hands and, you know, the, the strength, the fact that they're both national title contenders and stag bowl contenders definitely makes the rivalry more exciting. So from a crowd perspective, we might not see anything bigger than this ever again, but from a importance of the game, you know, what the stakes of the game can get higher and higher the later we go in the year. All right, we'll have some of our regular categories that will be focused solely on the Tommy Johnny game, and uh, we'll go through those right now, starting with the game ball. And I'm going to give my game ball. Keith isn't on this podcast, but uh, in honor of Keith, I'm going to give a game ball to two people. I'm going to give a game ball to two players on defense, in fact. A, a couple of guys. Uh, first, uh, Dylan Andrew. Uh, second, Austin Yoakum, um, Dylan Andrew, I, I think, uh, stuck out to me the, the first couple of drives, the first uh, quarter plus of the game, and then Austin Yoakum definitely down the stretch. Uh, talking about uh, Dylan Andrew, a guy who had uh, eight tackles on the afternoon, had a, a tackle and a half for loss, and was in on a couple of big plays. And then uh, Yoakum, two and a half tackles for loss, a pair of sacks, uh, five tackles on the afternoon. And in a game where it was really the defense that uh, set the tone for St. Thomas and maintained it uh, while the uh, you know while the offense kind of uh, at times struggled to find itself. Those are the guys I really wanted to uh, to spotlight. You mentioned uh, some of the the numbers on defense, but I don't know if we've mentioned that St. John's had just one rushing yard on 20 attempts. Uh, we mentioned that they only took uh, 43 snaps on the afternoon. They only had 151 yards total of offense. Uh, their uh, offense, you know, basically wasn't on the field almost the entirety of the second half, and that's why my game ball has to really go to someone on the purple side on defense. And you know I want to take somebody on the defensive side, and I've seen you and heard you do this to Keith before too because you know us defensive players, we always want to give props to the defensive guys that don't get all the, the stats and the accolades and the recognition, and that's completely fair. I mean, I obviously agree with those numbers, uh, the defense is what carried the day for the Tommies. I'm going to go with somebody on the other side of the ball, though, just because uh, I think it, it speaks to, you know, kind of the, the surprises of this game. You know, you've got so much depth at running back at St. Thomas. You got Jordan Roberts, a former player of the year. Uh, you got Tucker Treadle. You got Josh Parks. You know, those guys can all break a big run. And who was their leading rusher today? Their fullback. Jeremy Molina leads the team in rushing with nine carries for 61 yards. Uh, I looked back, the Tommy start, started four of their 14 drives by handing the ball to the fullback. That Usually the fullback gets some carries on second, third down, short yardage situations. They had it in the ball on the first snap of four of their drives, just kind of setting the tone that we're going to come smash you in the mouth. 
we're going to run, you know, every, every possession is four down possession. You know, it's very rare that they, you know, concede a punt and we're just going to drive the ball down your throats and we're going to keep your offense over there on the sideline and we're going to make you stop us. And even if that means giving the ball to the fullback, that's what we're going to do. And it worked. He had that one big 27 yard run. Uh, He also had a seven yard catch. So he had 68 yards of offense and for that's a pretty big day for a fullback. And he set the tone with the way the Tommies were going to control the clock and control the football today. Yeah, in fairness, I grabbed the defensive guys first uh, and left you uh, with uh, offense. But one thing I do have to compensate with is a soundbite. So uh, here's Glenn Caruso talking about your game ball recipient. You know, everybody knows Treadle's name. Everybody knows Roberts. Everybody knows Parks. Nobody really knows Jeremy Molina. No, and, and uh, that might, might have been part of the reason why he snuck out those yards today. But one of the things I really love about our players is um, they work their har- hardest, and they are, they're patient. And when their opportunity arises, usually they make the most of it, and that's what you saw to Jeremy today. For my hidden highlight, uh, I want to go with a, a catch by Luke Iverson. You may have seen a catch by Luke Iverson uh, prominently posted on the front page of D3Football.com for quite some time Saturday. A uh, big catch in the first half that ended up uh, on that front page for quite a bit of time. That is not the catch I'm talking about. That is that's not really the That doesn't really qualify as a hidden highlight. But uh, in this second half, for the Tommies, the uh, the period in which they really controlled the clock and controlled the ball. Obviously, some big third down conversions, and, and one of them, uh, St. Thomas is uh, sitting at the beginning of a drive. They've uh, converted uh, two first downs already uh, coming in, and they're leading 13 to 10. It's their second drive coming out of the locker room for the second half. And a uh, third and five from their own 43, Jock Para hits uh, Luke Iverson for a five-yard completion, or just one of those times where they move the chains. It is a, a time in which it was you know, an early play in a drive that ended up being 12 plays, 47 yards, five and a half minutes, ended up with a 43-yard field goal to put uh, St. Thomas up 20 to 10 in a, a game in which... You look at the final numbers for Luke Iverson, and he's got two catches for 40 yards. The other one, the 35-yarder, is the one that got the most attention because it was truly spectacular, but this really workmanlike catch that moved the chains, kept the drive going, and kept the St. John's offense off the field is uh, my hidden highlight for this game. And my hidden highlight came late in the game. It's fourth and one. Tommy's are on the Johnny's 29-yard line. They've got the three-point lead. There's a minute 58 to play. A lot of coaches there would settle for a field goal. Six-point lead, kick it deep, play defense. That's not what Glenn Caruso is going to do. That's not what I would do. I have this philosophy, and I tell people this all the time at every level of football. If you can't get one yard when you need it most, you don't deserve to win the game. And I love that decision. Fourth and one, line up, go for it, get the yard, line up in the best formation of football, the victory formation, take a few knees, go home, game over. If they don't convert there, if they get stuffed – St. John's gets the ball. They still have to drive about 70 yards uh, or into field goal range at least. So there's some risk involved, and that's what I love about taking the risk, going for it on fourth and one. Para converts it on the QB sneak, and then he gets to take a knee and, and go home victorious. As you might imagine, Adam, uh, 37,000 people in the stands are a lot of interesting stories, and you, we couldn't possibly cover them all, even if we had our entire team there. But there was one story that I really wanted to uh, wanted to bring to you and uh, talk about a little bit before we wrap up this uh, special edition of the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. And uh, in this, I'm talking with uh, Brian Stein-Sapir. He's the uh, St. Thomas kicker. He comes to the University of St. Thomas from Chile. 
and his family came up from Chile to see him play on Saturday afternoon. Here's a little bit about that. My family, when I told them about this game, they and plus I'm a senior, they were really excited about the opportunity to just come to a beautiful stadium and experience the rivalry because they had never, like, they had all they knew about Tommy John is what I told them, and they watched the streams uh, back home. So my whole family got super motivated with the game, and I didn't just get my brother, my mama, and my dad, but my grandparents came too, my uncle and my cousins. So I had a a good amount of people here cheering for me, and I was very happy about that. It, I mean, they've been supportive of me from the start, and it, just having them be here and see me makes me extremely happy. I don't know. I just couldn't not include this part of the story, Adam. It just seemed like a, a very uh, cool and a kind of a Division three kind of thing to have. Oh, absolutely. Like you said, there are so many cool stories going on uh, that day and around this game, but that's definitely one of the most unique uh, I think we could have possibly found. So and it was great. And not just that, it's not just a novelty. I mean, he had a great game. He had two big field goals that really helped decide the outcome of the game. So, you know, kudos to him. And, and I'm sure you know he'll be proud that his family was there to, to be in the crowd to see it. And I think that's where we're going to wrap up the rest of this uh, D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Uh, this was Around the Nation podcast number 176, a podcast special covering the 2017 Tommy Johnny game. Uh, if you recall what we've said on previous podcasts, uh, when we have rivalries like this, not Cortica Jug, because that's a name that's set in stone, not Monon Bell, but, uh, you know, Amherst Williams. Uh, Tommy Johnny, uh, Monmouth Knox, the and and uh, Co Cornell. If there are two schools like that, where the that's the name of the school, the team that won the most recent game is the one who we will call this rivalry by for the uh, next year. And so that makes four years in a row, by the way, that uh, St. Thomas has has won this game. And so uh, again, it remains the Tommy Johnny game throughout d3football.com through the course of the next year uh so thanks to adam tur keith mcmillan and i will be here with the full week four podcast which should be in your feed dropping on monday morning uh thanks for listening and uh catch adam tur's snap judgments on sunday adam i know we're uh, this is a podcast where we ostensibly we were talking only about the tommy johnny game but uh, a quick look at what you're writing about for snap judgments on sunday Every thought of yours is a friend of mine. Yeah, it was a very eventful and emotional week in Division Three. You know, more than than most weeks. So, I mean, we'll touch a little bit on the, in this game that we've talked about. Uh, not much needs to be said that hasn't already been said. Uh, I'm also going to check in with Wooster, which uh, got back on the field after a very emotional week after the loss of a teammate. Uh, Wheaton, after you know the all the drama and. Things that went on there with the felony charges against five players, which is very unusual this week. And then the good news, Grove City snaps a 33-game losing streak, winning their first game since 2013. Uh, that is, you know, I love writing those kind of stories. So got to talk to some Grove City people tonight and uh, excited to share what they had to say. So catch Snap Judgments on our site uh, early Sunday afternoon. And thanks for listening and tune in for the rest of our coverage throughout the week. And come back for another Around the Nation podcast on Monday morning. If you like our podcast, please consider rating it in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get this and other fine podcasts, assuming you think ours is a fine podcast. The executive producer of the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman, production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music is by DJ Mentos, whom you can find at djmentos.com. And thanks to our guests on this edition of the podcast, uh, Gary Foshing, 
Glenn Caruso, Brian Steinsapir, and then Sports Information Directors Ryan Klinkner and Gene McGivern uh, for their time on this edition of our show. And thanks, of course, to the creator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com, Keith McMillan, and my co-host on this podcast, uh, Adam Turr. You can reach out to us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football on Twitter. Keith is at D3Keith. Adam is at Adam Turr, A-D-A-M-T-U-R-E-R. It's not Adam Turner. It's Adam Turr. It's like I go back to um, the episode of uh, 30 Rock with the rural juror every time I try to say Adam <laughs> Turr's name. I know. Yeah. I know. Story of my life. I'm used to it. <laughs> we my, do. My, my son's getting used to it. <laughs> we do have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. You can join the conversation by registering the post at d3boards.com. Registering with a legitimate email address. And, of course, you can follow d3football.com on Facebook as well. And another new podcast coming in about 24 hours. Do we still do witty banter, or is that reserved for the regular podcast? <laughs> <laughs>